Right. Uh, good morning, good morning. If we can make our way back to our seats, that would be fantastic. We're in the negative numbers here. I don't know what that means other than people who are joining us online. Hi. Um, they get a little annoyed because they're like, that number is in the negative. You're supposed to be on. Um, I think that's, the, I don't know. I'm thrilled to be with you all. My name is Wally. If I have not met you, uh, I have the honor and privilege of being the teaching pastor for Walker Harbor. And it is really, really good to be with you all last weekend. Um, my family and I went to Chicago for a few days, and it was just beautiful, and we had ourselves a blast. It was great. We had unbelievable weather. I know it was as well here. Fantastic, but we had fun, and it's really good to be with you all. So I love spending time with you. Uh, it, it was great to get away, and I have to say being away with my family and enjoying that time, and I was able to uh, relax and thoroughly be gone and enjoy myself because the team and the staff here is incredible. And I had no concerns about anything, obviously. In fact, I'm like, I'm sure it'll probably be through the roof that much better uh, without Baldy talking for so long. So I am thrilled. Um, you know, for our staff, uh, Sarah uh, is our worship coordinator and does such a beautiful job with that, amongst many other things. Lisa, uh, back there, Lisa Campbell, she is our ministry coordinator, which means a lot of things, and, and it is. Like, we always have to work on her job title because it is uh, carries basically everything that fills in the gaps, and then someone holds us together, organizes us, and helps lead us in, in many of the things that we do. So grateful for her. And then Jess, who you don't get to see a whole lot, although sometimes she comes and entertains us so well with announcements. Uh, but Jess Mitchell, who is our kids coordinator, and she does such a brilliant job with that. And it's just a beautiful team. And last week, if you were here, uh, Tom Ellenboss, who is the lead pastor, senior pastor for Harbor Churches, uh, came and taught and was with us. So I'm grateful for all of that. It is good, it is good, it is good. So, um, thrilled for that. We're going to dig in. We're starting a new mini-series uh, within our series. So we've been walking through the gospel according to a young Jewish man named Matthew. And we've been doing that for about a year now. Uh, it, it's, we're pretty close to where we hit that year point. And within that, though, there are themes within Matthew. So these uh, things that we could kind of sit in for a few weeks or however long that are themes within Matthew that we call mini-series. Uh, and so we're starting a new one this morning called Light at the End of the Tunnel. And so the reason we're doing that is because the next number of weeks, it, it actually seems a bit gloomy. Um, which I find hilarious because tomorrow is Halloween. And if you, maybe like me, you grew up in a church and man, oh man, Halloween, there, there were like sermons against Halloween, right? How, you know, whatever. I, I mean, whew, the things that were in there. But I find it fascinating because we did not plan this in the, in the way that it's Halloween tomorrow and we're starting this series in which this morning we're going to talk about the end of the world, as you do. The next week we're going to talk about the rapture. Then the following week uh, we're going to talk about hell. And then after that, if we haven't got enough, we're going to talk about death. I mean, just a party, Right? So we're going to talk about what's going to happen to all people, but we're going to talk about what will happen to some people. We'll talk about where some people might go. Like goofy, goofy stuff. But to get at that, I think, do we have a video first that will just give us a little snapshot of what this little mini-series will be like?
It's great. I like the little army guy, and you see the hand. <laughs> Knock him over. This is Jeremy Cruz, by the way. So good. Anyways, um, so this party that we're going to be in for the next four weeks moves from doomsday thinking to how some might go, to where some might go, to all, all will go, right? If you know us, though, and you've been around Walker Harbor, you know that there is so much more underneath and around the text. There's a lot more going on, so I'm actually really excited to sink into this. And though I do have to say, I find it fascinating, and honestly, I do find it a bit depressing that the American church is so obsessed with these topics. But if we're honest, it goes way beyond the church, our world, but certainly our, our country. If you go to just Hollywood even, how many movies have been made about the end of the world? Apocalyptic stuff, all of that. Uh, anyone name some movies, end of the world stuff? What was that? 2012? Armageddon? Remember that one? Day After Tomorrow, yep. Yep, I was thinking that one. World War Z. What's that? Moonfall. Okay. I mean, if you, it doesn't, and you get then books, anyone, books, literature, people are enthralled with the end. We get in it because it's the box office through the roof, TV ratings through the roof, book sales, yep, go, end of the world. There has been an exorbitant amount of ink, sweat, and blood spilled over these topics we're going to be in. The church has held heresy trials and punted out many pastors based on their comments about these topics. But where this gets dodgy is, is these topics are most often pitched, described as abstract, theoretical, futuristic, and otherworldly, yet people get ostracized, relentlessly criticized, and deemed heretical if they don't think or believe the right way. But do we have evidence? What, what is this? Where, who's got video of how this is all going to be? And where do we get this from? Uh, and meanwhile, what I find fascinating is how people actually live their lives today almost seems secondary. You think what? How dare you think such things? But their lives, eh, yeah, well, but you can't think those things. You see, it gets a bit dodgy, I'd say. In other words, the intensity in which these topics are often spoken would make one believe that these topics are central to the faith, central to salvation, and they must be like on just about every page of the biblical library. But are they? So with that, what I would love to do is I would like to say a word of prayer, and then we will sink in a little bit. Gracious God, I bless you for the gift of this morning. God, I bless you for the opportunity to gather as your body, here, people who are the church, who get to serve and live and give and be your hands and feet in the world. We have the immense privilege an invitation to show the world what you are like by how we live. And, and we can gather and sink into the scriptures, unpack them, dig in, and continue to learn together and grow together in what it means to follow you. And so as we sink into this, God, it, it is my hope, my prayer, my desire that the posture and meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth will bring honor and glory to you, God, and you alone. Pray this name in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. And amen. Um, so we put it. We're going to sink in next four weeks. The way I wrote it down, let's turn up the heat, grab our trident, see if we can find that red spandex-wearing devil who is dancing to the soundtrack of earthquakes and 1970s vinyl records being played backwards.
ridiculous. All right, Matthew chapter 24 is where we are now. Let's begin here. Then Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples, his students, came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked them. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now what I want to do is I want us to take a peek at um, Jerusalem first from the Mount of Olives. Then we're going to look at some of the massive structures and stones the disciples are, are in awe of here. And then later, I want to return to these questions that the disciples are asking, but look at it in another translation that I find to be far more helpful for us. So first picture, uh, this is the Mount of Olives in May. So somebody took a picture of me. I got to teach at the Mount of Olives. Stunning, beautiful. So we're sitting there. If you picture Jesus sitting on a hill like this at the Mount of Olives, and then behind me, behind there is Jerusalem and you see the Golden Dome. So that's where the Temple Mount would be. And so it's the temple. So behind Jerusalem, you're sitting up at the Mount of Olives and looking over this. Jesus is then sitting and he's looking out and his disciples come to him and have their conversations as they're looking at this incredible structure. The next picture is a sketching to give you an idea of what Jerusalem looked like in the first century. Next picture um, nope, back up, back, one more, there's, there's not one more, okay, we'll go with this one, this is a model in Jerusalem, uh, at a museum, it's an incredible, mu oh, there we go, it was there. Uh, so this sketching here, you have the Temple Mount here, you have the Kidron Valley to, to the right here, and this way is what we were just at, we were standing over here, Looking back over here, so looking over the Kidron Valley, you have the Valley of Hinnom that runs uh, up the west and north, uh, or the west, sorry, southwest side, Kidron Valley. Temple, you see massive, and then the wall that goes around it, Jerusalem, and then on this, next, next slide, so this gives you like, here is then the Temple Mount, next to it, here is the Antonia Fortress next to it, the Praetorium you have in there, so that you have Rome that kind of gets collided and all this, but this thing is massive, huge, incredible, and next slide gives you the, um, what is known as Robinson's Arch, so the entrance on the south west side, and you could just see in the first century what it would be, there'd be shops, but it gives you some of the size of this to enter into the temple platform and just how big it was. And in first century historian Josephus writes in his massive work, Wars, about the spectacle of the temple. And he wrote this, to strangers as they approached the temple, it seemed in the distance like a mountain covered with snow. For any part not covered with gold was dazzling white. It was stunning. At the time, the temple complex was the largest dedicated worship area to a single deity anywhere in the world. Now, when a group of us were in Jerusalem this past May, we went underground into the rabbinic tunnels to see the first century base of the temple. Because you can go in there and they have the rabbinic tunnels now open where you can go in and see the base and these stones. To be there and see the size of the stones and the scope of the process that it took to build this temple, it is mind-blowing. There is one stone in the temple that you, that at the base that you, we got to see, one in one of those tunnels. It's 44 feet long and weighs 570 tons. One stone. That is 1,140,000 pounds. 
The process that Herod the Great cooked up to reconstruct the temple, which is known as the second temple then, when he rebuilt it, continues to mystify modern architects, the best architects today, on how did they do this? Because when you see the size of the stones and how did they get them moved into place, how did they move them from stone quarries far away, get them there and build this thing up without the tools and modern equipment machinery that we have today, it, it is overwhelming. Herod was the original mad genius. He was absolutely brilliant and an incredible architect, and he was a little nuts. But on to Jesus' students asking when this destruction that Jesus just said, well, when will this take place and what will be the signs that will re reveal the end of the age, which seem like pretty loaded questions, Yes. Like, wow, that's no small thing. So what we're going to do is both this week, next week, for sure, we're going to immerse ourselves in a lot of text, scripture. So we're going to listen to Jesus' very long-winded response and then immerse ourselves in the what? Context. Because listening, here's what I want us to do. Listening with first century ears will help us be better students of Jesus today. If we will place ourselves as the, as the disciples there, sitting there with him, hearing this, knowing what is happening around them and what is ahead for them, it will help us so much. So Jesus, what say you? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Pause. Or go into large city streets and scream nuts-like into a megaphone a bunch of fear-mongering crazy stuff to get people all panicky. I'm missing my translation doesn't have that part. Mine says don't be alarmed. Whoops. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but whoever stands firm to the end will be saved. Are we having fun yet? We're just getting started. Lots more. And this good news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, and real quick, homework assignment, read Daniel because Daniel was likely the most popular, most read in the first century time of Jesus. It was really hot off the press, if you will, and was heavily read, and it's going to fill in the gaps this week, but especially next week. If you read Daniel's, especially chapter 7, 9, 11, and 13, I think it is, but these uh, 12, these things, you'll go, oh, I see what's going on here. Jesus is quoting, referring, and pulling from this in all sorts of ways. And what is Daniel in those things? Apocalyptic literature. Really important. Let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Circle that. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. 
for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, circle that, do not go out, or here he is in the inner room, circle that, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of the, oh, we're just getting started, of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the, son of the, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the peoples of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the others. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Deep breath. And we're all set. We can go home. Clear as can be, you're all like, yeah, got it, done, no problem. That was quite a monologue by Jesus. Now, we need the context because otherwise there might be some that read this only through 21st century eyes and that would be tragic. Because one might think that Jesus said, what Jesus just said only pertains to us here today. Could you imagine if something like that happened? Now, I want to take us into the context of those standing with Jesus, listening to Jesus, and then think about those who first read these words or heard these words read when they were written, understood to be written some 40-ish years after Jesus' resurrection. So if you would think in the mid-70 common era, 70 CE, you're in the mid-70s about that you might hear this read out loud at the earliest, somewhere in there. Really important, okay? Let's begin with how Jesus said there would be people who would claim to be the anointed one, the coming Messiah, right? Okay, deep breath. I'll go slow. This is really important. In 44 to 46, common era, CE, first century, a fellow named Theodos, his Greek word means flowing with water, Think of that scripturally. But he was a Jewish rebel who led a short-lived revolt against Rome, but was quickly then snuffed out and forgotten. But this is now about 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus, this guy comes along and leads a group against Rome and claims to be the Messiah. Our first century historian friend Josephus described another man named Simon who withdrew, ready, to the wilderness in messianic fashion and had a following of about 20,000 people. But his following was also short-lived. Then around 6 CE, you have 6 CE, common era, so now you have, not, you know, Jesus is just a kid, even, so they're already, and this is in people's mind, there's a Jewish leader named Judas of Galilee or Judas of Gamla. He led a resistance, listen to this, to the census imposed for Roman tax purposes by Quirinius in Judea. So when you read the Christmas story and a census is called by Quirinius, right? He says, hey, you need to go and travel. We got to take a census. This guy led a resistance saying, don't do it. He encouraged people, don't Take the, don't register for this census. So when you think of Mary and Joseph going to do that, our friend Josephus credits this Judas, ready, as being the one who established the fourth philosophy of the Jews, also known as the Zealots, the Zealot movement. So the other three philosophies are known as the Pharisees, 
the Sadducees, and the Essenes. This guy gets credit for gathering and kind of organizing the Zealots. And the Zealots are the group who eventually will lead the way in starting a massive war against Rome from 66 CE to 70 CE, which that takes us into rumors of wars and specifically that massive war, which is a big deal. So the Jewish war, it's known as the Jewish war, the Great Jewish Revolt, or the First Jewish War, which stretched from 66 CE to 73 CE, began during the reign of Emperor Nero, he being the crazy one, and who deployed his military general, Vespasian, important name, to crush this revolt that is taking place. Vespasian first invaded the Galilee region before making his way into Jerusalem. Now, there's a guy named Yosef ben Matiyahu who is appointed as the Jewish rebel leader, commander in Galilee, but he was eventually overtaken by Vespasian and then was conquered by Vespasian and his son Titus. Now, Matayahu, what he did then is because they were defeated, he became a Jewish traitor to Rome and then was later given the name Flavius Josephus by the now emperor Vespasian. Yeah, the historian that we reference over and over that you hear me reference, the first century historian Josephus, he was first a Jewish rebel leader, like a general in the military until he got overtaken and conquered. So then he defects and becomes a traitor to Rome and starts working with Vespasian. Vespasian gives him the name Flavius Josephus and he begins to write the history of the Roman Empire overtaking the Jewish people, but he writes sympathetically because he is a Jew. Are you with me? Really important. This is where we get so much of our first century context through the writing of Josephus. Now, with Vespasian becomes emperor in 69 CE. So he was the Roman military general. He becomes emperor. His son Titus now becomes the military general who will lead the war into Jerusalem, destroying several Jewish towns in Judea, displacing tens of thousands of people. And then he is the one that leads the destruction of the Jewish temple and the entire polity system in 70 CE which is what Jesus said would happen if the people tried to take up arms and attack Rome with violence. And here it is, 70 CE, it all gets crushed by Rome. I mentioned a couple weeks ago how the Sadducees based their whole philosophy and their everything on the temple and the temple system. So in 70 CE, when the temple is destroyed and that whole thing is, the Sadducees will cease to exist as a people because their center has been destroyed. Everything they base themselves on is gone, so they begin to just dissolve in many ways. So then uh, a few pictures. Uh, first one, this is, so today, modern day, this is where that Robinson's Arch is. And what you see is just stones laying everywhere. They've reconstructed some, but it was smashed down. Next picture. This picture is then stones laying on, as Jesus said, these things are going to be just chucked to the ground. Rome just smashed this thing. Next slide. Uh, this is me crawling into that stuff. My wife took a picture my first time there because I was like a kid in a candy store and I'm climbing on stuff and doing all that. Uh, next slide. Uh, this, uh, Brad, a little blurry here, but Brad, who was leading our trip, if you see here, look at one stone. That's one stone. How big, and all this stuff laying, but you look at how big this thing was and it was smashed. They crushed it. They ran these people out. Rome destroyed the temple, and it went down as Jesus said it would. Now, you can read so much more, and oh, the, the amount of detail on this Jewish war is immense, and it's important, and I would encourage you to read it, but we have enough to work with to give us context of what is being said, yes? It's like deep breath. Take it in, because how many are already like, wait, what? This stuff happened that Jesus talked about? Uh-huh. So far, we've kind of nailed it all. 
But this then shows with these, this war going on and the wars that took place around it, how nation will rise against nation and kingdom, the kingdom, the empire of Rome against the Jewish people and more. These kingdoms are colliding and, and fighting. And in the midst of all that we were just describing here, all the warring, people also experience, get ready, earthquakes and famines. Historians provide us with five significant earthquakes that would have impacted the first century people of the Bible. Next slide. There was an earthquake in Crete in 46 CE, one big one in Rome, 51, Apamea, 53 CE, Laodicea, Heropolis, Colossae, the letter to the Colossians. Colossae would, after this, was not able to rebuild. This was kind of the end of the city of Colossae in 60 CE with this earthquake in Campania, 62 CE. Massive earthquakes. Then there was a massive famine from 41 to 54 CE during the reign of Emperor Claudius, which is recorded as killing at least 30,000 people in Rome alone. Famines, earthquakes happening all around this context, context, context. If you're in the first century, you have followed Jesus, and now you find yourself 20, 30, 40 years past the time, and you're like, it's all happening as he said it would. All of this is available. Basic history, basic history which is essentially ignored, skipped over, by modern religious prophets who are trying to operate out of fear. It's now! That which was written was now! But we just saw it all happened. Now, here's the thing. For a first century Jew to speak, and this is so important, to speak of the end of the age first meant the end of a particular time or way of being in the world. Remember, that's what the word said. When you come to the end of the age, did it say the end of the world? The end of the age. Now, here's the thing. To a first century Jew, the world did not come to an end in 70 CE. But hear this. Their world did. Are you with me? So when you say the end of the age, they're looking around and they're like, yeah, it's not the end of the world, but it is the end of our world as we have known it, as we have structured it, as many of them have lived, that world is crushed and no more. That's really important. Jesus alluded to this by using the language of the abomination that causes desolation, quoting from the prophet Daniel. Jesus' words tie together the past with what Antiochus Epiphanes did to the first temple in 167 BCE, before Common Era. That's when they came, in, they came in to the temple, they slaughtered pigs in the temple, the Greeks did all kinds of abomination that causes desolation as they wrote about it then. What they did to the temple, they said, you can't do that, and they did this, and they wrote about it, Daniel did, and say this would happen. That whole thing kicked off then where you had the Maccabees come in and re-cleanse the temple, where they came in and fought against the Greeks, and said, you can't treat our temple this way, they fought against them. That's not known today as Hanukkah, how they came in and reclaimed and re-cleansed the temple from the Greeks who caused desolation by their abomination of the temple. That's the first one, but then again, first century, most of the New Testament, when they write about the abomination that causes desolation then, the second one, they're referring to the Jewish war of 70 CE. Again, you came in and did to the temple what you cannot do. That's, that is an abomination that causes desolation, they said. Here we are again, they're saying. In fact, in the last days of the Roman siege in the 70, uh, a group of zealots captured the temple mount from the priesthood, and here's what they did. They met in the inner rooms of the temple courts. They gathered together briefly. 
Remember Jesus saying that? Oh, they'll meet in the inner rooms. Yeah, this group of zealots, they for momentarily captured the, the Temple Mount and then they hid in the rooms together, but it didn't last. And wait for it, there was another group of Jews that are written about historically that escaped to the wilderness. They ran off to the desert and there was a whole group that created a whole way of being and a whole system, another structure, another way to organize and they ran out to the wilderness. The desert which again captures the words of Jesus. And that helps us better think about Jesus' students asking the, the question, when is, the, when is this evil age that we're a part of? This evil age of Rome ruling us with other people constantly having the boot on our neck and we're always subjected to them. When is this evil age going to end? That's what they're asking. How Rome used Herod the Great as a puppet to collude with the religious system and then his son Herod Agrippa would continue to uphold and embolden that system which we read about. We read how Jesus confronted these We've over the last several weeks, how he confronted the political systems of his day, the religious systems of his day, and he said these things will not last, they're broken, they're fractured, they're not complete, they're not whole, they're not centered in God, and they will fall. Are you tracking? Are you with me? You see how important context is because it just colored in the lines. So in the first century, to think about or to give energy to the end of the world really doesn't actually fit in the way and teachings of Jesus. He doesn't spend his time and energy talking about the end. He actually says how we live today is really matters. And let's talk about that. And, and there aren't others culturally, contextually, that wasn't a thing to talk about the very end. They talked about the end of the age, the end of the age, the end of this age. And the systems or the world of the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots did come to an end. They ended up dissolving, going away. Some of them morphed, took on. The Pharisees essentially became the rabbinic way later on. They would kind of morph into the rabbis. Jesus was not responding to his students' questions with an answer that ignored them and skipped over them and say, hey, thanks for asking the question. I'm going to talk about 2,000 years from now when other people in the United States are here and they're going to find this fascinating. But you all, please. No. But Jesus is pleading with them to think about what, or better, who, for them, they were centering their lives on. What are your lives centered on? Because the world that they know was coming to an end, and Jesus' life and teaching is, now here's the thing, wildly relevant for them, of course, but for us today. Because we, though we can say, we are in the midst of a lot of broken systems and structures, correct? And so we do think, and people are like going, oh man, I mean you hear of earthquakes and wars and you systems and structures and people are flailing and hate is growing and all that. Is that true today? Yeah, yep. And then you start going, and Jesus is like, yeah, these things are going to happen when a particular age, when a particular way begins to flex and move, and when it's not complete, when it's not whole, when it's not centered on the right thing, these things happen, and an end is coming. So can we say we're in, we're in the midst of an end? Are there birth pains to an end coming? Absolutely. I have no problem saying that. Because now what I want to do, though, is as we're getting towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in order for us to recenter, I want us to remind, remind us what Jesus exampled and taught as he was just getting started in his public life and ministry to say, this will be our center. This will be a new way in the world. After Jesus' baptism, in which it reveals an anointing and a summons to live and model, what he's saying is, I'm going to usher in a whole new way to be human. When he uses the term, and he uses it all the time, over and over, the son of man, the son of humanity, I am here to show you how humanity is supposed to live. 
Follow me in that. Matthew 4, 1 says this. Then Jesus, after this baptism, after this summons, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the desert, to be tested by the devil. I'm getting ready to show you how we're going to live. In order to do that, though, oh, there's going to be a testing. I've got a lot ahead for me. There's a lot going on. And so what's going to happen first is he's going to model how to experience testing and tempting, and being pushed on. Let me model how to absorb that. Oh, by the way, and what he is doing is, he is actually saying the Israelites, the Hebrew people, and what we know as the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, they were also tested and tempted in 40 years in the desert, and they failed. So now Jesus says, I will go out, and I will do what happened to them, but I will succeed. I'll show you how to do this. In order to take on the systems and structures of his day, Jesus essentially is saying, here is how we prepare for that battle. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 4. From that time on, Jesus then, he comes out and he begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven, a new kingdom, has come near, is around you, is near you, is within you, is what he says. Now that word repent is really important because it means a change of thinking and a change of direction. You have been walking in a certain way and thinking a certain way, and Jesus comes along and says, what I need you to do is change the way you think and change the direction you are going and turn toward or return to God. That's what it means. It's not shameful. He's not shaming people. He's not yelling at them to make them feel terrible. He's saying, you have been in a system and I'm asking you, inviting you and pleading with you to come and change your mind about things and to follow me into a new way of being human. Jesus then models and teaches a kingdom vastly different from the kingdoms of empire and greed, conquering and violence. Taking us Back to Jesus' students' words, and now I want to look at them in a little more helpful translation. Our friend N.T. Wright has the Kingdom New Testament, says this, and I, I think this is really helpful. Tell us, they said, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that you are going to appear as king? When will we know that you, ready? What he's saying is, when will we know that you've been enthroned as king? And then that the end of the age is upon us. Why I find this helpful? Because he's warning them, many will come claiming to be Messiah, but you now know my teaching. You know my ways. And the kingdom of heaven has already been inaugurated, and people are going to push against it, and it's going to get nuts. Those are simply birth pains of the thing, the new thing that is coming. And the appearing, or how we will know he has been enthroned, that part, this is what Jesus' students had the hardest time understanding, and I would argue we still have a hard time getting it and accepting it, or maybe liking it today. Why? Because where is Jesus enthroned as king? On a cross. That's his enthronement. On a cross, Jesus doesn't fight the old system or systems with violence. Instead, he absorbs the worst the old system can muster, and he takes it into the grave. That's what he's doing. Rather than getting an army and saying, I'll fight it the way that it has always been done, instead, I will let that thing flex and do everything it possibly wants and can, and I'll take it, can, and I'll take it on, and I'm going to take it into the grave, and that's the end of these systems. That was the intent, end of the scapegoat system, end of the sacrificial system. We're putting these things in the grave to be no more, which this death makes way for a birth, a new beginning, a new creation, a new way to be human, which Jesus modeled and taught and says it looks like and resurrects and shows these students. But he says this, at the very beginning, my kingdom looks like this. Matthew 5, we call this the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, children of this kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which ties it back to the beginning. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. If you live in this way, it doesn't make life comfortable, easy. You'll likely be pushed on, pushed against, persecuted, but you're living, inheriting, and walking in the kingdom, in the heavenly kingdom. I would say it this way, to live the way of Jesus is to live the eternal in the now. Jesus is inviting us to live following him, which when we do that today, we are actually living the eternal now. It's not yet complete, but we're actually pulling, bringing heaven to earth, which is what Jesus did. We're pulling that forever into the one foot in front of the other of right now. Are you with me? This way of living is countercultural. It confronts and subverts the dominant kingdoms of Jesus' day, it did, and ours today. If you live this way, it will be very subversive and confrontational, though, to our systems and structures that function in a certain way. When we receive and give from a humble and hungry for justice and righteousness posture, we live as peacemakers rather than chaos creators. We live as peacemakers rather than chaos creators. And it doesn't take much to recognize how our surrounding culture is in the midst of chaos. It's a culture of fear-mongering, and we are suffering, correct? So Jesus' words seem especially relevant to us. Now let's get in them. Back to chapter 24 real quickly. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But whoever, oh, back up, whoever stands firm to the end will be saved. And this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. The first followers of Jesus are being challenged to hold strong amidst immense persecution and force. And he's essentially asking, how will you respond? First century followers of Jesus, how are you going to respond when Jesus is arrested, put on trial, and brutally killed? How are you going to respond? Because the temptation will be to give up, to walk away, and to grow cold because this didn't go the way we thought it should. And we're going to read in the next few weeks how each of the students of Jesus wrestle with this. Nearly all of them will be killed by choosing to hold tight to Jesus, and a few of them will take his words and his ways to the ends of the earth that they knew it as anyways. Which leads us to spy into that word saved. This saving that Jesus speaks of is not esoteric, it's not cloud hopping, it's not disembodied evacuation. The word is sozo. Go ahead and say sozo. To save a suffering one and restore them to complete health and wholeness. To be rescued and to be put back together when you have suffered and have been taken apart. It's a flesh and blood, sweat and soul kind of salvation that begins in the present and finds its fulfillment in the future. Yes, of course. It begins now and finds its fulfillment in the later. This leaves us to ask for us here today, what is our center? What is the center that we trust saves us? What are we building our life on? And that question is really actually better to be asked, who? 
Who is our center? Who are we building our life on? And how does that center, how does our center lead us, teach us, guide us to live right here, right now? Are we following the words and ways of Jesus as his way guides us to walk and to live as peacemakers and justice seekers? Or do we find ourselves getting sucked into the chaos created through panic and fear-mongering? Because I, I remember reading in that text and it's like, yeah, I'm not going to get overly worked up because these things are going to happen when we don't hold to the center things are going to spiral things are going to get a bit bonkers and I'll recognize it we can name it but I'm not going to lose the plot because this apparently this is the end of an age Jesus said this isn't yeah when we don't hold to center things are going to go off course here's what I would say living with open hands and humble hearts to the way of Jesus leaves us unable to point fingers and pick fights. Because my hands are open, my heart is humble and open, and I actually don't have space, I don't have ways to be pointing fingers and to be picking fights because I'm too busy serving, giving, loving others. Because our hands are busy making bread and pouring drink, welcoming all to the table. This alerts our heart to remember the life of sacrificial love gifted and poured out for all by Jesus. That's why we participate in the Eucharist, communion. It's to remind our hearts and activate our hands to the love of Christ. That's why we participate, is we remember the life and the love of Jesus given and shown and poured out for us, we remember it so that it sparks our hearts and leads our hands and feet to emulate, to live in such a way. The love of Christ and the peacemaking ways of the eternal kingdom. End of the world? Don't know. Nor does anyone else. And next week we'll look at a text that says that. Who knows when this will all happen? Jesus has an answer. It's right there. He gives it. He says who, who gets to know that? Anyone want to gander a guess at what he says? God. He says the Father. Not the angels even. He says not even the Son. As in not the Son, but the Son. You see, when's it going to happen? So don't get worked up. Live here right now. Be in this. Follow me. The end of the age? Sure. The end of the world? Mm. <laughs> so helpful, beautiful, and good. We are invited to walk and live the way of Jesus. It should ground us. It should center us. We need it now more than ever. I need it now more than ever. I don't know about you, but I have conversations daily that get a little wonky, a little sideways, a little crooked, a little heated, a little amped up. <sighs> Deep breath. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that system. This week, that's yeah, a pretty broken system, huh? I bet it's going to come to an end. It sounds like you might even destroy it. <laughs> Oof. What's our center? Who is our center? Uh, the invitation will be, we'll have some people on this side, and we'll have a couple people on this side, and, and we'll take the bread, and we'll just invite you. This bread is a picture of Jesus' life that he lived, that he gave in sacrificial love. The cup, is, it's a symbol, it's a picture of his blood that he poured out. He allowed the systems and structures of his day to flex on him fully. But in order to take it and bury it and say no more. And so let that be a reminder. And then, as it reminds our hearts, may it send us as a community to live the way of Jesus to a world 
that needs good news. Good news. So I'd love to pray. Uh, we're going to have our uh, musical worship team. They will come first and we will serve them. You will hear words, something along the lines of this is a picture or a symbol of Jesus' body gifted, given for you. This is a symbol of Jesus' blood gifted for you. And you can take, drink, take, eat, and reflect, and however you need to reflect in that. We'll serve them, uh, and then we'll serve Andrew um, as well, um, as well. And then um, you, you may all come. We have gluten-free over here if, if you need as well, trying to be as practical as we can. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, I bless you for loving us, for meeting us right where we are. Oh, for these words this morning, God. Um, the teaching that you gave Jesus, the way you instructed your students, you loved them, you listened, you certainly warned, but you called more than anything, invited them to follow you. You let them know that yes, there are things that are broken, there are system structures that are way off course, that are doing immense harm, and that will happen, it'll flex, it'll be, but it is not the end, it's not the all, it's not the center, and it's not the forever. When we choose to follow you, I bless you, God, for that invitation. I bless you for loving us so much that you, Jesus, took it all. You didn't just crush it violently with a military. Instead, you absorbed it. You took it on so it could give its all and then you would take it and bury it that we would be free. We would have opportunity to experience the kingdom of heaven fully, completely, begins now and hits its completion as you restore all things. Bless you, God. May this time as we come and take this bread and this cup, we do this as an act of worship, we do this as a way of saying yes, we do this as a way of saying, I, I want to follow your ways. Follow you, Jesus. All are welcome. All are invited. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. I don't uh, think it's all too hard to see that some of what we read in there, it's obviously really helpful to see how that all unfolded in the years around uh, Jesus in the first century. But then we ask ourselves questions today. Well, it seems like much of that that we even read is happening again. And as I've had so many conversations, always pushing, yes, I know, but is, is it because we're centered on? Is it because we're building on structures and systems and foundations that are broken, that are crooked, that are lopsided. You can begin to point, yeah, we're, we're heading, that's not going to win, if you will. And so we are invited time and time again to be centered on the person and way and love of Jesus, the Christ. Many will come claiming stuff, but my invitation and our invitation is that you would center on Christ. Hold there, that we would be a community that follows and then goes and lives this out in the midst of a very scared society, fearful, angry, uh, hearts that are growing cold and need 
a hug, some love, some welcome, some ways of Jesus lived out for them, in front of them, that we would grow open to the kingdom of heaven, the desires to come in us and through us for others. May you, Walker Harbor Church, may you find your center, choose your center to be the person and way of Jesus. May you, in the midst of fear, fear-mongering, may you, in the midst of a lot of bad news, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, may you choose to center yourself on the Christ that is Jesus. May you continue to study and look at and watch the ways of Jesus in the midst of a culture that had gone sideways and figure out, find, discern, pray for how do, how do I live that out today in the midst of something very similar. And here's the thing, you don't do it alone. We don't go it on as if we have to do it by ourselves. We do this in community. We knit together in love and we live this out together. Let's go together and follow in the way of Jesus, held together by the grace and the peace of Christ. Amen and amen. Amen.